0: All right, Philippians chapter four, verses two and three is where we are. I hope you're there already. Just before we get into it, I wanna get something straight right off the bat here. This church isn't perfect. Really? Thank you, yeah, I, was wait, I was waiting for that, that's good. Tell me something that isn't true, George, right? Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie is not a perfect church. Why? Well, there are no perfect churches because we are not perfect people. This church is not perfect because you and I are a part of it. We like to say it around here all the time. We are a mob of misfits working out the realities of salvation and pursuing Jesus together in humility and grace for one another because none of us have arrived. None of us have this figured out. And in the pursuit of Jesus Christ, we all have problems. Sometimes, those problems are the people that we have sitting next to us this morning. Sometimes, oftentimes, we ourselves are the problem. Now, the church that, that was at Philippi that Paul writes this letter to was, in many ways, a model church plant. They had a lot of good things going on there, as we have a lot of great and wonderful things going on here at Harvest, But the glory all to God alone, of course. So much so, by the way, that this church that Paul writes to, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, that he, he loves them and longs for them. He calls them his joy and his crown. A title he gives to no other church that he writes any of his letters to. He calls them his beloved. This church had a lot of good things going. But the church at Philippi was not a perfect church. This was not a church immune from problems and conflicts. Because you see, you get a bunch of sinners in the room together and stuff is bound to start popping off. What we see in our passage here this morning is the Apostle Paul shepherding the people of God in a masterful way by laying the groundwork of how to apply the gospel to loved ones who are in conflict with one another. Because, and as we'll see from our text this morning, resolving conflict is essential to gospel unity. Resolving conflict is essential to gospel unity. If we are going to be united together as followers of Christ, as we are called to with the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ being the foundation for all that we are and do. If this church is going to grow and flourish, then we must see the way that God's word calls us to resolve the conflicts that will inevitably arise in our mob of misfits in order that we may experience joyful gospel unity. So whether you are currently in your life as you sit here under the authority of God's word this morning in conflict with another believer or not, This text presents us with a clear picture of how conflict must be handled, and may the Lord work to have us all commit to this together. Let's turn our attention to the text, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. These are God's words to us this morning. Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. It's a short passage. Let me read it again. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We're going to build a phrase here as we look at the text this morning that I hope, we'll, I hope and pray will we'll stick with us as we go about the life of the church, as we go on mission as gospel people, and as we joyfully pursue Jesus together. Here's the big idea. Resolving conflict is essential to gospel unity. That's why Paul puts these verses in this letter. And so I, we see four things here together this morning. So I see this first, seek it eagerly. I seek conflict resolution eagerly if we are to maintain gospel unity. And what's very clear in this first part of our passage is is just how personal this is for Paul. I mean, his heart is on full display as, as he pleads with these two women, Iodia and Syntyche, to agree. That's what that word entreat means. I recognize that we don't go around using that word very often. You might have a different translation of the Bible that, that says beseech, but many of you might see plead there. This is Paul earnestly pleading that these two women would resolve whatever disagreement has arisen between them we don't know too much about these two ladies. This is the only place in scripture that their names are recorded. But what we see from these verses here this morning is that they were committed believers. They had, they had labored side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel. And, and what we can know about the, the church plant at Philippi, we can read about in, in Acts chapter 16. This church really got started with the conversion of a group of women who had gathered at the riverside, just outside of the, of, of the city of Philippi. It seems possible that Iodia and Syntyche were a part of that original core group of women who met together, although we can't know for certain what well, we can see here for sure from Paul's intentional naming of them and their disagreement is that whatever was going on with them had the potential to impact the church in a big way. Now this, this unknown disagreement was, was significant enough that, that someone had made Paul aware of it while he was in prison in Rome. That's where he was as he wrote this letter. Someone from the church had let Paul know that these two women who are a part of this church, who are an important part of this church, obviously, there was something going on here. So Paul addressed it. But not only did Paul address it, Paul publicly calls for the resolution of this conflict. Yes, you heard me right. Paul publicly calls these women out. All, all of Paul's letters would have been, would read, would have been read publicly as the, the congregation would have gathered for worship. So could you imagine being one of these two women? Probably they were, you know, a little bit anxious on their way into church that morning, recognizing that they're going to see the other. Maybe they're making sideways glances at one another in the lobby. For sure they were sitting on opposite sides of the worship center. Somebody would have got up to read Paul's letter, this, this Paul who, who God had used to save them, who God had used to bring them to a saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. They were, they were probably warmed by Paul's, Paul's tender and loving words in the prayer that he prayed for them in chapter one. They were probably encouraged by the, the rehearsal of Jesus's humility in chapter two. They were probably emboldened, by Paul's call for us to mutually pursue Christ and, and the incredible truth that, that we're going to heaven together if we're with, if we're united together in him in chapter three, and then bam, chapter four. I entreat Yodia and Syndekee to agree in the Lord. Awkward. I mean, this is a blind side. This came out of nowhere for them. But this was a loving and gracious blind side. Paul does this out of love because unity is essential and must be something that we pursue eagerly. Notice notice here that that Paul doesn't command them to agree. He calls them. He entreats rather than enforces. He pleads rather than pressures. On the grounds of of the relationship that he has with them, he appeals for them to reconcile and does so directly and eagerly. As we said already, these women were prominent in the church. Everyone likely knew what was going on between them. There may have even been people taking sides. I'm with Yodia, I'm with Syntiki here. So in reality, Paul's addressing of this conflict would not have been a shock for everyone because the implications of this conflict were big enough for the church that Paul needed to address it as he did. Bible commentator Moises Silva in his commentary writes this, the apostle's directness confirms how close he felt to this church. One does not take risks of this sort unless one can depend on thick cushions of love and trust to absorb the impact of rebuke. Paul was confident enough that the relationship that he had with this church and with these two women in particular was enough for them to receive this rebuke out of love. An incredible point for us to see here that conflict resolution must be contextualized in a deep and abiding love for one another. And notice also that Paul doesn't play favorites. He entreats them both to resolve this matter. Unity is essential for the gospel-centered church. Unity is essential, and so resolving conflicts that threaten that unity must be essential as well if we are to complete the work and the mission that we're called to. I mean, it's, it's evident from this letter. It's evident even from the, the first words of chapter one that, that Paul's primary concern was the advancement of the gospel, and it should be ours as well. And fights and disunity amongst members can only lead people away from the faith, not to it. So for the sake of the mission that we've been entrusted with, that each and every single one of us as followers of Jesus Christ own individually, and we as the church own corporately, we must seek conflict resolution earnestly for the sake of gospel unity. And interestingly enough, if you know anything about the life and mission of Paul, he knew the sting of conflict all too well. You can read about in Acts chapter 15, just before uh, Paul would go to Philippi and this church would get started, he's having a discussion with Barnabas about where they were going to go and who they were going to take with them. And we read in verse 39 this, and there arose a sharp disagreement. Paul and Barnabas didn't agree. They didn't agree specifically about who they were going to take with them. And so they separated from each other. Listen, sometimes that's how things need to happen. But I think we could all agree that that's not the ideal. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Listen, that is not how we want things to result Paul first came to Philippi on his mission of gospel advancement with this conflict fresh in his mind and heart. Paul knows the sting of disagreement and its effects as he's writing these words to this church and these women. So he calls them to agree and seek resolution earnestly. The uh, the Puritans were a group of believers that lived in England in the 16th century. So much we can learn about them and their experience. They had one phrase that I love so much. It's this coming up on the screen. Keep short accounts with God and men. That's the kind of heart we should have when it comes to gospel unity, when it comes to seeking resolution to conflict. Don't allow a backlog of bitterness, of guilt, of resentment, of shame, in your relationship with God, certainly, but also with fellow believers. Deal quickly with conflict in your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with others. Because we know that, that conflicts in the church amongst brothers and sisters in Christ will come, but when they do, we should all have the heart that resolution would be sought eagerly. How are we to do that? How are we to do that? Well, we see this secondly, that we should do it with the mind of Christ. The basis for Paul's calling Iodia and Syntyche to resolve their issue is, is what we see at the end of verse 2. Look at it again. He calls them to agree in the Lord. That word, that word agree is, is very important. The phrase in the original language shows up all over the New Testament. I've given you a couple of different opportunities to, to see those, the way that it comes up in the New Testament in the sermon notes at hbc.info. A few references that you can use, that you can read as you go through your time in God's word this week. But, but this, this phrase in the original language shows up some 10 times in Paul's letter to the Philippians alone. Most notably, it's translated in, in chapter two, verse two, uh, this way. Paul writes, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. And down in, ver- in chapter two, verse five, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When Paul says, agree he means, have the mind of Christ. Think the way Jesus does. I mean, all, all throughout the letter, this is what Paul has been calling the Philippians to. Have the same attitudes and values uh, as Jesus. Put on humility. Have, have a, a commonality of Mind on and about the truths of the gospel. Lift up your thoughts from, from this world with, with its, its mundane and meaningless ideas to something more, more wonderful, something more profound, something infinitely true and eternal, incredible. The incarnation of the Son of God and all that that means for these two women, for the church at Philippi, and for us here thousands of years later. Paul is appealing to them to resolve this issue because they have the same realities in Jesus. Iodia and Syndicate, you believe the gospel, don't you? Paul's saying. Everything I've said in, in this letter, you agree with, don't you? Well, then there's no reason that your disagreement should go any further. Now, when Paul calls them to agree, he's not telling them that they need to agree on everything. And thank the Lord about that, because for us to agree about everything would be boring and, and kind of lame, okay? We're not called to be like mindless robots when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. We won't. We will not agree on everything. On areas of, of, of secondary and tertiary theology and doctrine, on the philosophy of church or ministry. We won't even always agree on on personal decisions that our Christian liberty allows us. And listen, that's fine. Because what we do agree on are the critically important things. So we can let everything else go. We can disagree with one another, but we can get over it because we share the mind and heart of Jesus. Jesus who brought us into the family of God together. Listen, so many of our arguments, so many of our disagreements, so many of our conflicts would fall away if we all committed to living more in the realities of what Christ has won for us together. So many of our conflicts would fall away if we lived more fully in light of what is ours in Christ. It's not just mine, it's not just yours, it's what we share together. We are in the Lord together. So many of our conflicts would be resolved or cease to exist if we, chapter 2, verse 3, did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but counted others more significant than ourselves. Or if we looked not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others, chapter 2, verse 4. That's the mind of Christ. That's what we're called to agree on. That's what it means to have the same mind. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave up his rights to step into this world that he created, to die a death that you and I deserved so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled, so we could be brought from death to life, so we can be justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. Jesus, who did not insist on his own way, but came humbly as a servant. So we're called to follow Christ's example, to have his mind and agree, because we are in the Lord together. We are not united ultimately because we attend Harvest Bible Chapel Berry together. We are not united ultimately because we are evangelical. We are not united ultimately in conservatism. Our unity is found in the fact that we are in the Lord together. I love this quote from Pastor Alistair Begg. The gospel does not erase our distinctions or our disagreements. In fact, the unity that God's people share in the main things, the gospel of Christ and the truth of his word, frees us to acknowledge our distinctions and disagreements on secondary matters. Christian unity does not lie ultimately in our politics, our social status, or what color we think the carpet should be, but in the one whom we know to be the way, the truth, and the life. John 14:6. So do you recognize that you are a threat to the unity of the church? I am a threat to the unity of the church. And are we willing to own that and let it move us to humility because disunity and disharmony in the church affects our mission? How, how can we minister effectively to a dying world when we can't stand the sight of one another? And I'm sure that, that neither Iodia or Syntyche expected that they would be called out in a letter that Paul wrote when they were getting the church established, when they were working side by side with Paul in early evangelism in proclaiming the gospel in Philippi and the surrounding areas. So let's be careful and humble And seek the Lord's leading in this. And seek the Spirit's help to have a commonality of mind in Christ together. Amen? Because ultimately we are given each other by God to help and support one another. Which leads us to this third, conflict resolution is essential in gospel unity, so I seek it eagerly with the mind of Christ, third, and the help of others. Now, Paul moves here in verse three to starting to give some, some practical methodology, some practical ideas or practical ways that conflict should be dealt with. First, he says, women, Yodia and Syndake, you you get together on your own, you figure it out, but if it can't be resolved on your own, bring someone else in. Pastor Todd has used the analogy here before, and I love it so much, that that the role of of the Sunday sermon, the role of, of the authoritative preaching on God's word as the gathered church comes together on a Sunday morning, is that of a battleship on a beachfront assault. If, if, if there was a mission where, where, where uh, an army was trying to take a, a beachhead, the battleships would be on the outside, they'd be on the water, firing on the beach to stir up the defenses of the enemy, to break down bunkers, to, to separate the barbed wire, to take out the anti-tank defenses, so that the infantry could make their way, boots on the ground, and they could take the objective easily, or more easily. That's the rule of the Sunday sermon. It it stirs up the ground of our hearts so that the infantry, the boots on the ground, being our Christian relationships, being our small groups, being our counselors, being our friends can rush in and take the truth of God's word and help apply it to our lives. We see both of those things here in verse three. We see both of those things here in Philippians. Paul has used the first three chapters of this letter to hopefully stir up the ground of Iodia and Syntyche's hearts. And then he's calling, verse three, for somebody to rush in and help. Take a look. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Paul asks this true companion no idea who, who or she, he, no idea who he or she is, uh, to help these women. Their job is, is to help Yodia and Syndiki to come together and to have the same mind in the Lord and to agree, to reconcile. Okay, Paul calls in reinforcements. Okay, he calls in boots on the ground because sometimes the Sunday sermon isn't enough. Because sometimes we need other people's help. And we deceive ourselves when we think that our conflicts affect only us. Your conflict is not just your business. You are a part of the body of Christ and the conflict that exists in your life with another believer in the church affects the rest. I mean, we see this imagery of, of the church being the body of Christ over and over again in the New Testament. And if you think about this just simply and practically for a second, if your leg hurts, it affects the rest of your body. If your shoulder's jacked up, then everything else is going to be affected. And such is the case in the church. When conflict arises between two believers, if it cannot simply be resolved by the two involved, then the help of others should be enlisted as Paul exemplifies here. This, by the way, not just a Pauline thing. This is a Jesus thing. Jesus details the same idea in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. These two women were important members of the church. Okay, Paul, Paul affirms them. Paul, Paul affirms their work. He's, he's eager to see them reconcile because of the work they've done together, the fact that they've fought side by side for the sake of the gospel, and there's still work that has to be done. So Paul wants them to continue in this work, as he said so in this letter already, but that can only happen if they've resolved their conflict. Achieving the work that that wants, that Paul longs to see done, achieving the work that, that we've been called to as followers of Jesus, that Jesus Christ himself gave to us can't happen if we're in conflict with one another because conflict can divide or hurt the church. So Paul calls someone in to take the truths of this letter, to take the gospel, the realities of what it means to agree in the Lord, to have the same mind of Christ and to help these women agree. That's why he also mentions Clement. That's why Paul also mentions the the fellow workers in verse 3. To remind these women, to remind the church of the community of faith that they're a part of, those who they've worked together with. He's he's inviting others into the corporate responsibility that exists in building and maintaining gospel unity so that they can get back to work. Each one of us has a part to play in the building and maintaining of gospel unity in this church, in the body of Christ, here. And in the universal church. As we're on mission together, as God is building his church, we've got a part to play. So listen, we can't be afraid to step into conflicts that exist with brothers and sisters in Christ because we'll be seen as meddling. Because that's not our, our deal, that's not our business. Listen, if the body is broken in some way, we've got to work together to get it fixed. Certainly, we can go far, too far. Certainly, there's a temptation to meddle and to to always be in other people's business while not being uh, properly taken care of our own. That's certainly a temptation. But listen, we shouldn't be afraid of that because we are for one another. We are a part of one another as the body of Christ together. So as such, we are called to take the truths of God's word, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to help brothers and sisters in conflict. This is not and, and can, can not be something that we just leave to, to pastors, to church staff, to elders, to counselors. Something that we engage in together. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says, But exhort Interestingly, that that, that word exhort that's used in Hebrews 3.13, it's the same word in the Greek that Paul uses for entreat. But exhort one another, when? Every day. As long as it's called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, Christian friends, brothers, and sisters in the gospel are called to help one another in the mutual pursuit of living the entirety of our lives with the mind of Christ together. Now, you might, you might say, well, hold on a second. I, I, I don't know how to resolve conflict, I, I haven't been trained in that. Listen, certainly. Extra training is is good and important. Certainly the the members of our biblical soul care team who have been trained specifically for for conflicts and and situations like this are super super helpful and wonderful. But listen, we have all that we need to help brothers and sisters resolve conflicts. Right here. You don't need any extra training. Paul says simply, help. How could you help one another? Well, if a brother and sister is in conflict, take them to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2. I entreat Bob and Steve to agree in the Lord. I entreat Sarah and Rebecca to agree in the Lord. Well, yeah, no duh, George. That's what we're here to do. Okay, you want some more? Sure. Take them to to Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 to 11. I fail to see how any conflict, and and I don't want to diminish them here because I know that there's some deep-seated conflicts here. It's hard for me to see how no conflict could not be resolved when you look at the heart of Christ in Philippians 2, verse 1 to 11, and you see what we're called to, and you see how we're called to relate to one another. I fail to see how there isn't a single conflict that can't be resolved as we go through that together. We've got the word of God and that's all we need to help one another resolve conflict. So really, just two main questions that come out of this point. The first, if you have relational conflict in your life right now, unresolved, will you be willing to seek resolution of that personally? And if it can't be resolved personally, would you be willing to ask for help? Would you be humble enough to go to a brother or sister for the help that you need in resolving the issue, recognizing that God has given us one another to help each other? And the second question is this simply, will you be willing then if you're called to help, to help resolve conflict? See, there there is a depth of joy, of of supernatural delight to be found when people can have conflict, but get over it through, through and for the sake of the gospel. There's a depth of joy in Christian relationships, and we can go through hard times with brothers and sisters, but for the sake of the realities of what we share in Jesus Christ, resolve those things together. And in doing so, our relationships deepen and strengthen as the Lord leads us, because God has given us one another to help when conflict comes for the sake of gospel unity. Finally, and most importantly, I've saved the best for last for you this morning. Resolving conflict is essential for gospel unity, so I seek it eagerly with the mind of Christ and the help of others forth, knowing the eternal reality we share. These last words of Paul in this short paragraph are so encouraging. And again, he, he lifts this church's eyes. He lifts Yodia and Syntyche's eyes and minds to the wonderful reality that they have and that we have. And it is this, whose names are in the book of life. I mean, this, this ultimately answers all the questions of conflict resolution when we come to the profound truth that we are all in the family of God together, that through the work of Jesus Christ, we will spend eternity with him together, so many differences and disagreements and issues fall away because the heaviest lifting that has been needed in our lives has been taken care of by Jesus Christ, our Savior. He has fixed our greatest problem. He has solved our greatest need. The effects of sin and death are no longer on us as his sons and daughters, but instead we are forgiven and waiting for us is an eternity with him in glory. We are fellow heirs in the kingdom of heaven through the loving plan of the father and the faithful obedience of the son and the eternal securing and working out of our salvation here and now of the Spirit. So let's treat one another as such. Pastor Tim Keller, who who many of you will know, went to be with the Lord on Friday. One One of his quotes that was always so impactful to me was this, and I might be paraphrasing here, forgive me. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything's going to be okay. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, then everything's going to be okay. If our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it was, if it was written there before the foundation of the world, out of the grace and goodness and love of our Heavenly Father, if it was secured and purchased perfectly by the shed blood and broken body of the Son, guaranteed by the reality of His new life as He rose from the grave, then everything's going to be okay. No, No one name is more significant than the other if they're written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know how they're written. Maybe they're alphabetical. I don't know. But there's no specific order. There's only one name that's more significant. and That is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is Jesus Christ. We have this truth, Revelation chapter three, verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Listen, that is the eternal reality that we share together and that changes everything. And it's interesting here to note That Paul is assured of the reality of their salvation. Paul rarely exhibits this level of confidence. It's not insignificant. He is confident in the reality that these two women, Iodia and Syntyche, are Christian sisters based on the faith that he's seen in them and the work they've done for the gospel. So he's confident of their eternal reality. And so we, as we work together for the sake of the gospel with one another, when disagreements come, should, as much as we can, be confident in the realities that are ours in Jesus Christ together. And the more our eyes are fixed on the wonder of what is to come, the clearer it helps us see the world that we live in around us, our place in it. The more we have our eyes on the eternal realities that are ours in Christ, the more all the things in this temporal physical world come into proper order, the more, hopefully, Lord willing, we're able to see how conflicts can and should be resolved. I mean, we've just finished, I referenced Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. We've just finished an amazing series in Revelation. And I wonder if we could live more and more with all of the incredible realities of what we studied in that series and see how God is going to take the truths of what is to come for us and help us to apply those things to our personal relationships. Our time here is short. We're vapor in the wind compared to what is to come for us on the other side of eternity. So how can we seek to eagerly resolve conflicts for the sake of our mission, our mandate as followers of Jesus, and the gospel unity we've been called to live with and cultivate and develop with one another with the Spirit's help, how can it be more deeply seen? How does knowing the eternal reality that we share change the way that you view that person you're in conflict with? What needs to happen right after this, right after this service, what do you need to do? Where do you need to go to resolve that? See, the true joy of our lives comes when the realities of the gospel have taken root in our hearts. That's what, that's what Paul calls his beloved friends and coworkers in the gospel too here in this letter. And the implication for us is that when conflict comes, we deal with them as those who have experienced the true life change that comes from receiving the truth of Jesus Christ, of his death, burial, and resurrection, and all that means for us. And those who have been given the mission to make disciples in this world in fulfillment of the great commission, in the spirit of the great commandment. And so how has your handling of conflict reflected the truth of the gospel that you claim and are called to live out. So would we all pray that individually and corporately we would commit to this and develop this kind of heart as those who have been created, known, loved, saved, forgiven, redeemed by Jesus Christ. And would our relationships in every way magnify and glorify him for his good purpose and glory. Amen? Amen. Conflict resolution is essential to gospel unity. So I seek it eagerly with the mind of Christ and the help of others, knowing the eternal reality we share. Let me pray for us. Almighty Father, we we ask and and we long for you to create this kind of heart in us, Lord. Our desire is to magnify you in all that we are and do, Jesus, to to proclaim you, to praise you, to share your gospel from the altar of our lives as we've sung already. So we pray, Lord, that, that you would work in us, individually and corporately as your church to create in us hearts that long to resolve conflict quickly to maintain gospel unity for your glory that in every way lord the mission and mandate of our lives to proclaim the gospel to the world as you have called us to may be fulfilled we long to be good stewards of all that you have given us we long lord to proclaim the gospel with all that we are and do and so help us in our relationships to make that so i pray for those who are in conflict with a fellow believer right here today whether in the room or watching online i pray spirit that by your word by what we've heard this morning you would help them to resolve that conflict to seek resolution eagerly today I pray that we would be able to glorify you and magnify you and praise your name all the more as conflicts are resolved here today, that the mission may go forward, that the body of Christ may continue to be strengthened and that you would use us for your glory and good purpose. That's our heart's desire. That's all we want, Lord, is for you to be glorified. So Jesus, be magnified in us through this, we pray. In your precious and powerful name, amen.